All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning, good morning. So today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 13 and verse 14 and then uh, the following verse, which is chapter 14 and then verse 1. So kind of that intersection of the end of 13 and then into chapter 14 uh, of Romans. So we're going to be studying or looking at four marks of the mature believer found in these two verses. Um, These aren't the only marks of a mature believer. This is certainly not an exhaustive study of Christian maturity. Um, There are other tests and questions that the authors of the New Testament would put forward to us, Um, but we can add these four to our list and uh, look at them closely today. Uh, And I guess I should add, too, that normally when I teach, I'm pretty interactive and conversational, but admittedly, I have a lot of ground to cover today. So if you have questions, please hold them to the end if, you, uh, if we have time. Uh, but if nothing else, you can certainly come grab me afterwards. I'd be happy to talk further uh, about any of these matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it together. I pray that you would grant us humility as we approach the authority of your word. Uh, I pray that our hearts would be softened by your spirit. Um, Open our eyes to behold wondrous things from from your law, from your word today. I pray that you protect me from error. Help me not to make heavy and grievous what your word makes light. Help me not to make light what your word makes heavy and substantial. Pray that you would bless our time together, that we would be encouraged and become more like Christ. It's your name we pray. Amen. So we'll focus our time on Romans 13 and verse 14 and then the following verse, 14.1. But uh, let's read the surrounding verses there to provide a little bit better context Uh, of the passage. So we'll look at Romans uh, 13, starting in verse 11, and we'll read through to 14.4. So besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before your own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we're looking at these different marks of maturity here in Romans Um, So we'll look at verse 14 first, and the first mark of maturity of a mature believer is that they're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So a lot of times when I'm studying God's Word, I'm sure you do the same thing, is that I ask questions of the text. And the first question here is just, what does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus? Or what does putting on, uh, what does it call to mind? And First, I mean, I think the obvious response is that putting on calls to mind the imagery of wearing something new, of transformation. And most of us are familiar with these different passages in Scripture that have this put on or put off, put on uh, type of commands in the New Testament. That said, it can be really easy to gloss over these passages because it's so familiar. This terminology is very 
we just use it all the time. And then we're never really wrestling with what does this look like in a practical sense in my day-to-day life to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Say it another way, how will I know that I'm putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? So let's look back at verse 12. It says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So the night is over. I think that's a great point to make. The night is over. We're not supposed to be in our proverbial pajamas. Wear the appropriate clothing. But what is the appropriate clothing for a mature Christian? Well, Verse 12 describes it as armor for battle, battle against sin, battle against spiritual forces of evil. I don't think it's a stretch here at all to hear the echoes of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, where he calls us to put on the armor of God. We're called here to lay aside the works, the deeds, or the clothing, to take off that clothing of evil, of sin and death, and put on the armor of light and life put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the second image that it calls to mind here with this put on uh, imagery is of new identity. Uh, The beginning of verse 14 starts with the conjunction, but. uh, So we have to be asking, what are we contrasting here? What's the contrast with that, uh, that that conjunction? So namely, we're contrasting the positive command to put on Christ with that negative command to stop doing something or to uh, no longer be something. And we've already covered it a little bit, um, but there's a transformative change that's taking place here. We're laying aside the deeds of darkness or putting on the armor of light. So namely, we're talking about a new identity. We look different. And our age is obsessed with identity right now, Um, obsessed with finding and identifying who you are and what you identify with. Um, Our desire for identity is not wrong, but where we find it often is. In this passage, the Apostle Paul compels us to find our identity in Christ, to put on the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 is almost a mirror of what we see here in Romans 13, Um, It even adds a little bit more detail. So listen here. I'm going to read Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5, if you want to flip there. Um, But listen for commands to put off things that describe a former way of life and then a comparison to a new way of life that we're to put on. So Colossians 3, 5, put to death. I mean, that goes in that uh, putting off category. Put to death, therefore, What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So there's to put on, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You can skip down to 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. When we talk about putting on, that's a great expanded definition of what it looks like to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. These are attributes of Christ that we are called to put on to actually emulate Christ in our new identity. So a question here, uh, kind of a practical application rhetorical question. In what practical, active, intentional ways are you putting on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love? 
In what ways are you demonstrating the pursuit of Christ and these fruits that bear his mark? So it's not spiritual disciplines that reflect maturity, but the fruits that spring forth from these Godward disciplines. What fruit are you bearing? Does it look like Colossians 3? Remember, you must put on. This won't happen by accident. We're called to actually do something, to take action here. So remember, the mature Christian doesn't merely avoid sin, but actively puts on the likeness of Christ. The mature Christian does not merely avoid sin, but actively puts on the likeness of Christ. So our first mark there of maturity was to put on, to be marked by the transformational manner of life that mirrors the nature and spirit of Christ. Our second mark we're going to look at is from verse 14 as well. So mark number two is to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And if you looked at uh, verse 14 there and you realize that Mark 1 and Mark 2 of spiritual maturity are literally the parts of the verse, you can probably guess what the next two marks are going to be by looking at 14.1. My points are not super creative here, but stay with me. Uh, You've already figured out my outline, uh, but let's, let's take a look at Mark number two. So again, a question as we examine the text is what does it mean to not make provision for the flesh to gratify its desires? So first, let's, let's nail down a few uh, definitions. So provision, that word there, it's a compound word, and you can see it there. It's in the Greek too. It has the uh, beginning there of that compound word pro, which just means in front of or before. Um, and then the Greek word is pronoia which noia is, has, it's broad, but it's part of this compound word which just means to think or to put into the mind. Um, so literally, it means forethought, to actually think before, to think ahead, to make provision or to plan ahead for a thing. Um, the word desires there, um, it's not just desires in the, in the typical sense. It actually... Uh, it actually carries the meaning of to lust after, not necessarily even in the context of a sexual way. It includes that. But it really means to long for or to desire or to crave what God has forbidden. It's a, it's a forbidden craving, a, for, a forbidden longing. Um, I think the NASB actually translates it as lust, if I recall correctly. Um, and that's, that's an accurate uh, usage of the word here. So I guess a good point to make here is when we're talking about desires and even desires of the flesh, we're not talking about your body's craving for water. <laughs> we're talking about something that God has explicitly said is forbidden and then a longing after that. Gratify, that's a pretty easy one to define because it's not here. <laughs> it's not in the Greek at all. So uh, it's one of those situations where a Greek word carries a lot of weight. It covers a lot of different words that we don't have an explanation for in English. So there's a, an English word or several English words that we insert in to uh, make sense of it all. So the Greek literally says, and of the flesh, make not provision for desires. Um, so you can see why gratify might be helpful there. But the NASB, I think, does a really good job of, of nailing down the, the translation when it says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. And I think that that's a really solid translation. So the point is clear. We're not to make provisions for our sinful desires. But what does that mean, practically speaking? Like, how do, what do we do with that? Um, so last week, uh, my wife and I, and our kiddos, we went to the White Buffalo Resort in Arkansas. It's our first time being there. It's at the confluence of the Buffalo River and the White River. It's beautiful. Highly recommend it. Uh, But if you've ever gone anywhere with little kids, especially a trip that involves maybe water, fishing, outdoors, sunshine, uh, you know that there is a lot of preparation and planning that's involved to make everything work. Um, So my wife, Becky, spent a significant amount of time in advance planning what we'd eat, what we'd wear, 
what we'd need during our travels there, what we'd need while we were there, what we'd need on our trip back home. And of course, I contributed and I packed extra socks. Um, no, I, <laughs> I really did. Uh, I, I really, I think I was helpful. No. <laughs> um, no, I, I participated in, in planning a fair bit of that too. But there was a lot of planning that was involved in the trip to make it a success and enjoyable. And it was. We planned ahead and everything just really went well. Um, thankfully, it was, a, it was a wonderful time. So my wife and I invested time, forethought, and planning for that trip. Becky and I worked hard to think ahead and to, to remove possible roadblocks, figuratively speaking, that would prevent that time from going well. But the Apostle Paul says that we should take the exact opposite approach of what my wife and I did for planning that trip. We should not make provision. And we don't really use the word provision much these days, and perhaps we should. Um, when I think of provision, it calls to mind imagery of like the Oregon Trail. Um, I grew up playing the, the computer game Oregon Trail. Maybe you're like me, where you would spend all your money in Independence, Missouri, at the, you know, before you leave, and you would buy as many, I, I would do this, I'd buy as many bullets as I can, and that's all I would buy, is just bullets, and then see how far I could make it down the trail before we either starved to death or all died of dysentery. Um, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. So the Oregon Trail talks about provision. It brings to mind the whole idea, and that the word provision, that they would stock and carefully select their provisions for the journey. Trails were carefully selected. Supplies were carefully chosen. And even outposts along the way were a welcome site where they could buy additional provisions. We're to take care to not allow these means, provisions, for us to indulge the fleshly, lustful desires. And again, like I said, it's easy to think as lustful in a sexual context. It's not it includes that, again, but that's not exclusively what we're talking about. We're talking about things that are against the will and nature of God. So practically speaking, how are you denying yourself provisions so that your sinful desires will starve along their journey to your heart? Think about it in that context. How are you denying yourself provisions so that your sinful desires will starve along their journey to your heart? I'll say it this way. If you have a familiar sin, know that you've made provisions for your fleshly desires. You're not yet done. You've not yet done enough, I should say, to thoughtfully and carefully starve the sinful affections of your heart. And if you're bristling at that statement, uh, you're not alone. As I've been studying this passage and thinking through it, God's been doing work in my heart over the last uh, year or so in this exact context. And it is true that starving your sin will not feed the soul. That would have been my rebuttal. Well, starving sin's not going to feed my soul. won't make me love God. I can starve, you know, whatever. Like, that's not helpful. Um, that's true. Starving your sin won't feed the soul. But we've already covered that. The Apostle Paul says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to not make provision for the flesh. It's both and. It's not either or, it's both and. This is a two-pronged approach to maturity. You should be doing both of these things simultaneously, feeding the soul, putting on the nature of Christ, rejecting the flesh, starving those fleshly desires along the way so that you grow so that you're sanctified in your journey. So what are the areas that you're most likely to fall into a repeated sin? Are you defensive, proud, easily angered? Maybe you're envious or jealous, fearful. Are you lustful, covetous, or greedy? Think honestly about the sins that you gave into this week. <laughs> Maybe... Maybe you're saying, you know, Paul, thank you. I'm glad you asked. Uh, my sin is anger, and boy, do my kids make me angry. You've made it very clear. I'm going to spend less time with my children. Um, 
maybe it's your workplace. Like, my workplace stresses me out, and all, <coughs> all sorts of negative behavior happens there, and, uh, you know, you've made it clear that I should not be in that circumstance. Um, it's easy to blame circumstances, your workplace, your kids, stressors. But look deeper. Perhaps, for instance, you have an idolatrous love of control or calm or affirmation. The mature Christian takes thoughtful, aggressive, radical, and repentant steps to make the same sin hard next time. The mature Christian takes thoughtful, aggressive, radical, and repentant steps to make the same sin hard next time. So our first mark of maturity is that we're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. The second was that we're making no provision for the desires of our flesh. And the third that we'll look at is that we're welcoming those who are weak in the faith. So let's read this again together, Romans 14 uh, and verse, starting in verse 1 there. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master, God, that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So if you're you know, noticing here in verse 2 that we're talking an awful lot about eating, um, a little bit of context here. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, this epistle to the church that was in Rome. Um, so this letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome. And many of the people who were saved in that church or had become believers in Christ were uh, Romans. They were pagans who had participated in pagan temple worship, perhaps, for most of their life. And then you had um, Jews who had become saved. There was a, a large uh, number of Jews there as well. And they came from the Mosaic and Jewish ceremonial law was their instructive in their past. Um, and then you also have um, folks there that are immature believers, and you have folks that are mature believers. So you just have this menagerie of different people from different backgrounds all coming together. Pretty typical picture of the body of Christ, if I'm honest. All coming together with different perspectives and different struggles. They each had unique fears. So the Jews, or maybe those who held the view of the Judaizers, as it's called, believed in clean foods and unclean foods, for example. They believed in specific days that were holy and some days that were not so much. Um, Gentiles, on the other hand, or the non-Jews there at the church in Rome, likely grew up in and around pagan temples. There were all sorts of sinful practices uh, that took place in conjunction with the preparation of meat, meat or animal sacrifices there in those temples uh, before the meat arrived in the local meat market. So while you and I might just see a tasty pork chop and uh, you know, think about how delicious that would be, the Jews, the Judaizers there might be thinking, I can't eat that. That's an unclean meat. Like, and literally their conscience would be afflicted by this thought of, I am bound to not eat this to please God. It's an immature Christian perspective, but nonetheless, that was where they were at. And then many of the uh, Roman Christians who had been saved out of idolatrous temple worship, they might see that meat and be immediately brought back to mind to all of the sinful practices, many of which they had probably participated in before animal sacrifices took place, and that meat ended up in the market. So these are no small snags. Like, these are these are some pretty big, like if you think about like what it must have been like, like these, their conscience was uh, legitimately uh, afflicted here as they're weighing through that. And then you have the mature Christians on both sides, perhaps uh, Roman, perhaps Jewish, who are saying, there's no conflict here. Uh, the, all meat is morally safe for us to eat. So, and I guess it's worth noting, too, if you look back at Romans 12, or 13, 12 and 13, that Paul's describing a scene 
that closely aligns with pagan temple worship. Um, so while the transition from chapter, the end of chapter 13 into 14 might feel broken, like it's a big topic shift and like, whoa, how did we get here? Um, know that he's on a related topic thread here. He's describing this old, uh, an image, if you will, of what would be pagan temple worship or common there. Um, and then this is kind of a connected thought. So question, how do we deal with the one who is weak in the faith? Oh, it says it right there in the text. We welcome them. But what, is that, what does it mean to actually welcome the weaker Christian? Last week, Dave Caldwell mentioned a welcoming church as a part of an effective outreach. And that certainly fits here. Um, we're talking more specifically about the individual believer, individual maturity. But let's not deceive ourselves into thinking otherwise, that individual maturity makes for a mature church body. Um, and that, that context fits here. But I think it's, before I begin uh, talking about welcoming the weak in the faith, I think it's necessary to make a distinction between welcoming a weaker Christian and welcoming false teachers and false teaching. Um, Namely, we should never welcome false teaching or false teachers. And we'll talk more about that later. Um, But what about those whose faith might be weak or even impacted by false teaching? Apostle Paul says to welcome them. But what does it actually mean to be welcoming in a mature Christian way? Does it mean we have greeters at the door? Does it mean we smile and shake everyone's hand? And sure, I mean, it definitely includes that. Um, but let's look at the word welcome in this passage. This is probably one of the most insightful things uh, for me as I was studying along. So the word welcome actually has a bigger meaning than what we mean in English. Um, So again, it's a compound word, and it begins with the Greek word is pros, uh, which is a strengthened form of pro. So again, it's a preposition of direction, forward or to, um, and then lambano, which is to take or to get a hold of. Um, And if you kind of grab the imagery and smash that all together, it literally means to take one towards oneself. Like, isn't that a cool picture of welcoming? (laughs) To take one towards oneself. I think it's beautiful. It has this idea, and I'm not, this is not just Paul sitting up here thinking of, standing up here, thinking of different ways to explain this. It literally has the imagery of folding someone in, to take someone alongside, to fold someone into your life. The Apostle Paul, almost as if being asked, but yeah, um, so yeah, uh, we're supposed to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh. Uh, but what do we do with the weaker Christians? <laughs> and I love that he just chimes in and then says, fold them into your life. That's what you're supposed to do. Surround them with the biblical hug of a mature Christian. Welcome them into deep and meaningful Christian community. So question, would people describe you as someone who folds in? Not only the like-minded believer, but also the weak and perhaps the confused Christian. Do you maintain loving, close fellowship with Christians who differ from you in matters of theology and lifestyle? And I am talking about actual Christians, those who God has been pleased to draw to himself, What about the prickly Christians? We know who they are. The smelly, the poor, and the uneducated believers. Do you fold them into your life? In what practical ways are you working to make outsiders insiders? The mature Christian doesn't merely greet others, but actively folds even the weakest of Christians into their life and faith. The mature Christian doesn't merely greet others, but actively folds even the weakest of Christians into their life and faith. So our first mark there was putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Our second was making no provisions for the desires of the flesh. The third, welcoming those who are weak in the faith. And then our fourth one here as we move towards our close is that mature Christians do not debate over opinions. Um, And perhaps you're afraid at this point that we're drifting into some form of accept everyone sort of ecumenicalism. If you're not familiar with that term, then you're probably not worried. But if you are, know that that's not where we're headed um, because that isn't where the Apostle Paul was headed either. Um, Throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul has zero tolerance for false teaching. Uh, It's almost humorous to read through some of his descriptions of how to deal with false teachers. Um, He commands the church to rebuke false teachers, to warn them, expel them, to not even go near them, to not even greet them. That's a remarkable contrast to what we just saw regarding the command to welcome those who are weak in the faith. And add to that, this is even more ch- an even more challenging command to not debate over their opinions. So we're not going to dive into this topic at, at length, but if you're interested, I would encourage you to review all the passages in the Bible where Jesus dealt with, with false teachers and Pharisees, and then contrast that to how he dealt with those who are weak and of immature faith. There's a sharp contrast there. Likewise, you can look at the Apostle Paul. Look how he compels the church to respond to those who are weak and immature versus how he responds to and rebukes false teachers, false gospel, and potential distortions of the gospel coming from teachers. I think a good example of this is in Galatians chapter 2, if you're familiar with it, uh, verses 11 through 21, where the Apostle Paul publicly rebukes uh, the Apostle Peter. Why is that? Well, he was eating with the Gentile Christians who believed Uh, rightly so, that every meat was safe morally to eat, and he was there chowing down with the rest of them and participating in Christian fellowship with them. But then when some Jewish Christians, some Judaizers came, um, he became intimidated and fearful and separated himself from one, unclean people, air quotes, the the Gentile Christians, and then he also separated himself from unclean food. And by that, he was giving the impression of a false gospel. He was actually leading people astray into a false belief that this separation from unclean people, the separation from unclean food, as the Mosaic and ceremonial law would have it, was necessary for the gospel. And the Apostle Paul rebukes him sharply because the gospel was being perverted. Now, we also know that the Apostle Peter responded to that rebuke. Uh, He was useful. We have his epistles um, that this was a a great example. But we have this exact same scenario being led astray in matters of what you can eat, what you can drink, all this sort of stuff that we're talking about here in Romans. Um, So know this. Anything opposed to the gospel taught among us, the gospel of Christ, should be opposed and rebuked. False teaching and teachers should be rebuked. But those of weak faith, perhaps even those confused and confounded by false teaching, welcome them, but not to debate with them. So let's ask some practical questions here. So first, first thing I wanted to know as I was looking at this text, and again, I was exam, examining this for my own life, uh, was, well, when is it actually a quarrel? I mean, like, when, where's the threshold here? Like, how... How many buttons can I push until we've crossed that boundary? <laughs> um, so if you rewind back to Romans 13, 13 there, if you have the ESV uh, Bible, you'll see the word quarreling. Um, some other translations use it as well. And that word literally means strife. I think that's how the NASB translates it, um, or contention. And it's, it's well translated as quarreling here. Um, it has the idea of tension, strife, um, fighting, uh, so quarreling is a, a great translation. And then if you look at 14.1, if again, if you have the ESV, you'll see, this, see the same root word, quarrel, but it's a different word. It's a different Greek word. It's not even a related word. Um, so again, like in 13, it had the literal idea of strife and contention and an actual fight, but only a few verses later, Paul uses a unique and more nuanced term, and it's a judicial term. Um, it carries the idea of discerning. 
and debate to weigh the merits of something or distinguish this from that. Um, I think of the courtroom to judicially argue or discern the merits of one's points. Um, so a few other translations put it this way. So the New King James says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. The Christian Standard Bible says, welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. The NASB, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. I think all of these translations do an excellent job of communicating that our folding in, our welcoming, should not include debating over disputed opinions. So it's clear that this has little to do with actual fighting, actual strife, and more to do with the effort to debate or judge, or even like a lawyer in a courtroom trying to convince the other parties of the errors in their judgment. The Apostle Paul says that this isn't how we reveal the welcome of Christ. No, the goal is to leave them... No, excuse me. The goal isn't (laughs) to leave them in their spiritual weakness of faith. Paul's point is simply that this effort at debate and logical arguments isn't the way it should be done. Let me elaborate on that a little bit more. So let's look at the next two verses. Verse 2, one person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. It's an important distinction. God's welcoming someone we should not do less than God. So why can't we pass judgment on those who walk differently from us? Let's read verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master, again, God, that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The gospel, the work of Christ, makes us and the weaker Christians stand. Who are we to judge the merits of their discernment? God was satisfied to die for them in their weakness. We should be willing to live alongside them in their weakness as God continues his work of sanctification. So the next logical question is, okay, Paul, but it sounds like you're telling me I shouldn't even have an opinion at all. Like, I shouldn't care one bit, one way or the other, what people think and believe. And I think that's a, I think that's a fair and logical question. Um, the Apostle Paul says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So the Apostle Paul has an opinion. <laughs> he says it right there. Uh, it clearly states that it's a mature thinking. It's mature to believe that nothing is unclean in itself. Then look at verses 19 through 20. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Destroy the work of God in your fellow believer, your fellow Christian. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So you see here that the Apostle Paul prioritizes peace and upbuilding, not for the purpose of debate, nor for the purpose of Christian liberty, should we destroy the faith of our fellow Christian. Then let's look at verses 21 and 22. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Here, Paul makes it clear that you should be strongly convinced in your faith. Again, you should have an opinion. You should be strongly convinced. But this topic of faith on debatable matters, again, debatable, is something you should keep to yourself unless it lends to the... unless it lends to the mutual upbuilding of everyone involved. So the next question, and I, you might be struggling along with me, this is the verse that I struggled, or this is the part of the verse that I struggled with the most as I was wrestling through it. Um, I didn't like this verse. <laughs> uh, 
as I started reading through Romans 13, 14, and 15 and, and spending some time studying there. So maybe you're wondering if questions are okay. Like, okay, so I can't, I can't dispute, I can't quarrel, I can't, you know, make my case. But what about questions? You know, can, is a question a quarrel? Like, am I, am I arguing? Like, is that okay? So before I answer about questions, I think it's better to ask yourself some questions before posing questions to your weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. So test yourself. These are just some questions that I, that I wrote down. Do my questions and demeanor reveal a heart of Christ-like humility? Do my brothers and sisters find my questions encouraging and helpful or burdensome and wearying? Do my questions derive from God's word? Do my questions prioritize the heart's response to God or seek primarily to expose logical fallacies of the mind? Do my questions reveal Christ as shown in Colossians 3? Compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forbearing, forgiving, and loving. So I think questions are powerful tools um, when they're in line with Christ's standard of welcoming and patience with us. Your questions, questions should reveal Christ, and anything short of that doesn't make the cut. So as we're wrapping up here, so my final question that I was asking is, so when is it an opinion? When is it a disputed matter? Like, again, kind of where's, where's the line there? Like, when is it a matter that's disputable and when is it not? Some of us really enjoy a, a good debate. Nothing thrills us more than to destroy, I mean, uh, reveal the logical fallacies of our opponents, I mean friends. Um, <laughs> and I joke, but it is true. Uh, many of us know that person. Some of us might be that person. Um, in all humility, this is a struggle for me personally, um, just being honest. God has given me much grace in recent years um, to grow in this regard, but I'd be lying if, to say uh, that if I don't have any sense of fear when a debate starts around me, and my fear isn't the debate. My fear is perhaps what links I might go to to ensure that I don't lose the debate. Um, and Apostle Paul here is talking to people like me when he says not to debate disputed matters. But the question still remains here. What is an opinion? What is a disputed matter? When do I know when I'm wading into questionable territory? So I think we can boil it down. Um, and this requires, as, as the passage would have it, biblical maturity because it requires a keen understanding of the breadth and the scope of the gospel of Christ. We should never be more inclusive than the gospel when it comes to dealing with fellow believers. That said, let's look at these two different things. So in short, an opinion or a disputed matter is something that is of lesser importance than two things. Maybe you'd add more things to this list, but I think we can say for sure these two. So it's less important. So is it less important than the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's test number one. And then test number two is, is it less important than the edification and harmony of the saints? If it's of lesser importance than the gospel of Christ, just chalk it up as the debatable opinion of the immature. Be the mature one. And don't debate them. Love them. Fold them in. Let God's sanctification begin in their heart and life. Let them observe from your maturity and learn over time. Opportunities will come to be able to talk through, not in a debate, but in life on life, living together, sanctification on sanctification way to mature that fellow believer. If it's of lesser importance than the edification and harmony of the saints, just chalk it up again. It's a debatable opinion of the immature. Be the mature one. Again, don't debate them. Fold them in. Let God's sanctification begin in their life. The mature Christian doesn't debate the questionable, 
but instead focuses their energy on affirming what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. The mature Christian doesn't debate the questionable, but instead focuses their energy on the fruits of the Spirit, focus their energy on affirming what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. So that's it. Wrapping up here, you have the four marks that I see here in Romans 13, 14, and 14, 1. There's certainly other marks of maturity, but these are the four to today. And I know that I've been challenged myself uh, as I've been studying and preparing this. But I had some questions that I was asking myself, and I'll pose them in closing uh, to each one of you. So each one of these questions, I'll number them off as I go and kind of ask some sub-questions. But each question relates to uh, the mark of maturity. So the first question here is, how are you taking meaningful steps at putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? What evidence would you see in your efforts, efforts, not just in disciplines, but in life transformation, actual fruit? What fruit is lacking in your mirror of Christ? And what might you do to bear more fruit in this regard? So question two, how are you actively removing provisions for the desires of your flesh? In what ways are you commonly tempted to sin? What practical steps could you take to starve that temptation on its journey to your heart? Consider your influences. TV, radio, news, music, friends, the workplace, internet, social media. What provisions are you leaving unchecked? Maybe say it another way. What provisions are you leaving along the trail to make sure that those temptations arrive healthy and strong when they reach your heart? I'm reading a book right now, and speaking of social media, he said, and I, and I quote, how can we spend one to three hours a day, and he's using national averages, how can we spend one to three hours a day in front of social media and not believe that we're being discipled by it? How can we spend one to three hours a day in front of social media and not believe we're being discipled by it? Social media or not, doesn't matter. Social media is not the enemy here per se. We are all discipled by the things that vie for our time and attention. Is what, and this is the root of that question, is, what's, is what is discipling you, prodding you towards making provisions for the flesh or killing those provisions? Question three, how are you at welcoming those who are weak in the faith? Do people of weak and immature faith find you a comfort and joy or a burden and condemnation? I think of Barnabas with Paul. It's a tremendous example. Paul is saved by the miraculous, kind grace of Christ. He's an enemy of the church. He was persecuting and killing believers. And it takes a guy like Barnabas to come to him, to welcome him, to literally fold him in and present him to the church. What an amazing picture of Christ and what an amazing picture of welcoming and that folding in. Who can you begin folding into your life that could benefit from the welcome of Christ? Question four, how are you doing at extending grace to the debatable opinions of others? Do you feel a need to disprove or judge the opinions of others? But what about in matters of food or drink or dress? Do you extend grace to these and the welcome of Christ? Do you flaunt your liberty? Maybe it's the opposite example. Do you flaunt your liberty? so as to confuse or even harm the immature faith of others. What about secondary matters of theology in regards to style of worship, eschatology, and similar topics? Do you love rightness more than you love the building up of your brothers and sisters? These are challenging questions. Um, I wrote them, been thinking through them myself. 
Uh, I would be, again, lying if I told you that I wasn't cut and convicted on ways that I can grow in maturity. Um, I'm going to conclude with Romans 15, verses 1 through 7, as our benediction, and I'll close us in prayer. It's Romans 15, verse 1 there says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Father, um, help us to grow. Help me to grow. Help me to become mature in my faith. Help me to put on the Lord Jesus Christ daily. Help me to help us to not make provisions, to make a plan for our flesh. Help me to welcome the weak in the faith. Help us not to debate one another but to build each other up, strengthen each other's faith. Father, I pray for the person here who might be overwhelmed hearing this and saying, it's impossible. I can't be mature. I'm not mature enough. I'll never reach that standard. Father, I thank you by your Holy Spirit that the mature ones are the ones who are growing every day, the ones who every day are being fashioned more and more into the likeness of Christ. And I pray that we would be encouraged by that, that the call is to every day to put off and to put on, to become more like Christ, to become more welcoming, to become more affirming and sanctifying to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to become more like your dear son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.